Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer session for deeper engagement. Today's discussion is on the Joe Rogan Spotify controversy, as well as young adults' mental health struggles during COVID. Our first speaker today is Dr. Ari Cement, who is a pulmonologist and works in the COVID ward at Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami Beach. Ari has been my guest on the last seven shows and is back because of popular demand. Here are my topics for Ari this week. Do you think that Joe Rogan and his scientific experts should be censored for anti-vax comments? What can doctors and scientists say to the public about COVID? Should there be censorship if individuals do not promote the medical orthodoxy? And if so, who should decide what gets said? Should it be rockers like Neil Young or the CDC? What are the latest innovations in COVID? What can we learn about COVID from the sewers? Will breath analyzers take over from vaccine cards as the next step of identifying the infectious in public places? Our second speaker is my good friend, Jeremy Chlorophene, who is a clinical psychologist in the Chicago suburbs. Jeremy interacts with young adults struggle with depression and anxiety, and I want to learn from Jeremy about how COVID has made matters worse for these kids. Every month since the beginning of COVID, I've spoken about the monthly employment statistics that were released again this past Friday. I do so because it is the best indicator for the health of the global economy. This month's data announcement was another shocker. Let's break it down. The Wall Street economists were expecting weak employment data because of the surge in Omicron cases. It didn't happen. Hiring surged. The employment survey showed an increase in employment of 467,000 jobs in January. The more volatile household survey showed an increase of 1.2 million jobs, which is really incredible. There were upper revisions to the November and December establishment survey employment estimates of 700,000 additional jobs. These are very large increases. When you get into the details of the report, there are still more indications of labor market strength. 1.3 million Americans were added to the labor force as workers who are not participating have decided to re-engage with the world of work. Labor participation is at a post-COVID high of 62.2%. Let's look at a breakdown of the duration of unemployment. A year ago, January 2021, there were 4 million workers who had been unemployed for six months or longer. As of December 21, the number had fallen in half to 2 million, and this month it dropped by 300,000 to 1.7 million. This is very encouraging to see that the long-term unemployed are finding work. It isn't that surprising, though, given that there are, we are hiring signs in every store shop window. Wages are surging. Year-over-year wages are up 5.7%. Wage increases and input prices are rising, like $90 oil means that inflation may not be transitory. This economy is firing on all cylinders, so we should expect Fed rate hikes and rising long-term interest rates. All right, let's get started with the show with our first speaker, Dr. Ari Simet. This week, the music artist Neil Young demanded that Spotify censor and remove from its platform the biggest podcaster, Joe Rogan, after he interviewed the scientist Robert Malone. For those who do not know Malone, he is a biochemist and a physician trained at the University of California, San Diego, Northwestern Medical School, and Harvard Medical School. He was a pioneer of mRNA technology that was used to create the COVID vaccine. Malone is currently Chief Medical Officer of Elkheim Laboratories. 
On the Joe Rogan podcast, Robert Malone questioned the efficacy of the vaccine and its boosters, among other controversial statements. Despite Neil Young's demands, Spotify decided to keep Joe Rogan as a podcaster for its platform. And as a result, Neil Young, as well as Joni Mitchell, removed their music from Spotify's platform to protest the company's unwillingness to censor Joe Rogan and Robert Malone. Ari, you listened to the Joe Rogan podcast with Robert Malone. What did you think of the discussion? And do you think it's appropriate to silence or censor Dr. Malone? I personally found it enlightening, even though I don't agree with almost half of the things that Dr. Malone says. I think it is important to have an open society. We're living in America where we have the freedom of speech. And I think the problem, once you start to censor people and kick them off Twitter and kick them off LinkedIn and Instagram, you don't know who to trust. And I think that's fair in North Korea, but in the United States of America, you could fight misinformation or disinformation in other ways by promoting true, real information above and beyond their misinformation. How do you distinguish the difference between misinformation and disinformation? Misinformation is just not knowing the right facts and you're just not aware of them. Disinformation is purposely giving over wrong information to lead people astray for whatever ulterior motive you have. So when you read closely through the transcript or you listen to the podcast, Robert Malone seems like a brilliant man and he's very smart. When you look at the fine details, you'll find areas where he's blatantly anti-vaccine. And there is a danger to that if people believe it is true. So I think that there's definitely truth to so many things that he says. He is 100% right. We needed to focus on early treatment instead of hospital treatment early on. Why didn't they do that? On one of Joe Rogan's podcasts on COVID, there was discussion of the side effects from the vaccine, like myocarditis in young men. All right, we spoke about this risk last week on the podcast. In particular, you mentioned that eight out of 100,000 young men were experiencing heart inflammation from the vaccine, but nobody died. And and like two out of 100,000 had a serious case. You speculated that getting COVID for a young man is likely much more dangerous in the long run than taking the vaccine. There are a lot of things that he says that make sense. But then when he goes into the vaccines and he talks about the myocarditis, which has definitely been recognized. If you look in the CDC, they recognize anaphylaxis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, all possibilities that you can get from a vaccine. And they're very upfront about what the problems are. Just to give you an example, Peter McCullough's talk, they talk about the numbers when they talk about myocarditis, very elevated compared to what the reality is. One example in the Peter McCullough talk is he says 18,000 fatalities related to the vaccine. First of all, that would be 539 million people vaccinated, and that's still a 0.0022%. But still, it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong if you take the vaccine. Also, threat to reproduction, Alzheimer's disease. He is just sowing vaccine hesitancy. Do you believe that if a podcast does not follow the advice of the medical establishment or the CDC, that that podcast or that information should not be made available to the public? And if so, what should the criteria for doing so? The only way to fight misinformation and disinformation is really to know what people are really saying so that you could verify it, look it up, 
research it. It only makes you better and understanding what the reality is. There are consequences to spreading misinformation. Instead of closing down free speech, you have to deal with the consequences of spreading misinformation. For instance, Spotify wanted to have Joe Rogan. They lost $2 billion in four days because of that decision. Kyrie Irving, great basketball player, decided he didn't want to get vaccinated. So he missed all the home games so far this year. So, But you don't kick him off the team. That's not right. It's not freedom of speech, but you have to deal with the consequences of your actions. We use expressions like, you have to follow the science. But the reality is that we really never know the truth. Scientists create hypotheses, then we create experiments, and the evidence matches the hypothesis, or it doesn't. When evidence arises that pokes a hole in our theories, we go back to the drawing board. When COVID started, scientists and doctors were confused, and there was a lot of guesswork. Some ideas turned out to be right, and others turned out to be wrong. For example, doctors thought that zinc provided a benefit to COVID patients, but zinc in controlled randomized experiments did not improve COVID patients' health, and then that treatment was abandoned. Given that we're all still in the dark about many aspects related to the vaccine, boosters, treatments, and the long-term effects of having COVID, why do you think it makes sense to limit the conversation only to those ideas that are widely accepted by scientists right now, instead of broadening the discussion to include views that challenge the orthodoxy? I think that's a beautiful point, and that's how you have to embrace people like Robert Malone and Peter McCullough, because even if I vehemently disagree with them, and I think that they're spreading anti-vax sentiment, which has really killed many people. Unfortunately, many people have not taken the vaccines. Even if they themselves were vaccinated, they spread it. So it's unfortunate. But that being said, they also do make the medical community more cognizant of the risks, which there are. So for instance, J&J is not your first choice, right? Your mRNA vaccines are your first choice when it comes to, to getting a vaccine because the safety data is better. Ari, you favor the use of vaccines, but I suspect that you favor Pfizer, Moderna over J&J. Even the J&J overall vaccine safety data is there. It's just you might as well use the safer one. So we've adapted and it's partly because there is a voice on the other side. And instead of shutting people out, you have to be open-minded listen to them and say why they're mistaken. People like Vladimir Zelenko, I mean, they're so outrageous that I still wouldn't take him out. I, I, I would want to hear it because it shows a lot of people how insane it is talking about microchips and vaccines. It's sort of so obvious to most people that it discredits a lot of the other things that he says as well. So it is important to uh, just... Be open-minded. In our previous episode of What Happens Next, we had a conversation with James Meeks, who spoke on the Wuhan lab leak. When that concept was first mentioned by Donald Trump and others, the magazine editors at Lancet condemned it and silenced this possibility even before there was an investigation. Why would one of the leading scientific journals behave this way? Yeah, I think that's a huge mistake. It just makes you double down more. All these people probably wouldn't be as loud and wouldn't be as noticed if they weren't shunned. All right, at the beginning of COVID, you recognize that COVID lives in the upper throat 
And then it might make sense to rinse with Listerine or iodine to kill the COVID virus, to reduce its spread to others, and possibly to help the patient as well. When you take somebody off YouTube, it's enraging. I was taken off in the beginning just for posting that Listerine and iodine rinse might work. I wasn't saying to do it, but I, I sort of came around and I understood. But at the same time, it's really enraging when you're like, oh my God, I'm living in the United States of America and they took me down. I took my video down. How should the leading medical journals respond to scientists, doctors, or non-experts that disagree with the conclusions of the medical establishment? Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, what they probably should have done is they should have maybe not mentioned Robert Malone to give them notoriety, but write down the key points and go one by one why this anti-vaxxer sentiment is incorrect. One of the points that Robert Malone made during his two-hour interview with Joe Rogan was that natural immunity is superior to the vaccine, meaning getting COVID protects you better than getting the vaccine for future COVID variants. He says natural immunity is 13 times superior than vaccine-induced immunity. Well, then you could explain that in the beginning, the vaccine-induced immunity was better than natural immunity. Then after Delta, things did change. Natural immunity seemed to be more protective than vaccine, but only by like two to four times as much. That would be much more useful than to attack these people directly. It is important to demonstrate why, what ulterior motives these people have. I think there's a great article by Tom Bartlett, everybody should read, about Robert Malone called The Vaccine Spreading Vaccine Misinformation. He speculates as to why Robert Malone is perhaps bitter because he was, he was not given the credit that he thought he was deserving of. He actually called what happened to himself intellectual rape. Ari, what should the process be to censor misinformation about COVID? And maybe we could use your own personal experience when you were censored for recommending using Listerine as an example. I think they have people assigned on the internet that are supposed to go out on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and their job is to, at that time at least, any unverified treatment, unverified meaning it's not NIH approved, we should censor and block it. I don't think it's a scientist looking at it. It's not somebody who knows that actually there was a publication in a journal about it. But I understand at that time that there were so many questions and I, I could sort of understand why it needed to be squashed. But what I think they should have thought about more is just putting a link, which now they have, but a better link saying, hey, why this is not really approved yet, why it's not out there. So they could have battled things much better by not squashing things. They should have verified to show you exactly what is effective and what is evidence-based and let you say what you wanted to say because there was actually no therapy at the time. What scientific evidence do you feel best justifies taking the mRNA COVID vaccine? Just looking at the latest data showing the hospitalization rate for unvaccinated adults is now 67 per 100,000. Vaccinated adults is five per 100,000. I mean, that just came out today. The rate of a vaccinated teen is one per one million. So whatever side effects, and they are real side effects of the vaccines, are outweighed by the benefits. 
And somebody like Robert Malone and Peter McCullough might sow distrust in the vaccine leading to vaccine hesitancy that is still prevalent. New topic. I want to talk about some of the latest COVID innovations that the audience should start to follow. There have been some recent studies related to using the sewer system to monitor COVID in your community. Why are you so excited about this? Because SARS is a respiratory virus and it's shed into the environment through coughing, sneezing, speaking, and breathing. But it's also found in urine and feces. So they have this dashboard called COVID Poops 19 dashboard. And Johns Hopkins has a dashboard of all the cases of COVID from the very beginning. They also have this dashboard where they have these places where they check sewage for the coronavirus viruses inside the sewage. So it's pretty incredible. They look for viruses in the wastewater and they have 58 countries, 3,000 plus sites, and they could tell if there's a new outbreak going to happen based on the sewage viral levels. So they were just researching the coronavirus in the New York City wastewater. They have been doing it over the past year and they noticed weird sequences of the virus and they call it cryptic lineages. And there are speculations that it's either from people whose infections aren't being sequenced or from virus-infected animals like rats. I didn't realize that rats could even get COVID. Can they spread the virus and can it result in other mutations? It could explain what we discussed last week, the saltational mutation, where you can get weird mutations that are above and beyond the normal adaptive evolution. How can we use this sewer information to improve public health? New Zealand uses it primarily as an early warning system. So it's new detections. So in certain cities, they'll analyze it every week or two and they'll see if they see viruses that pop up, then they know that, boom, their city has an infection. I'm sure they do it in China because China right now apparently is COVID free. Since Omicron is not particularly dangerous, do you think foreign societies should lock down to prevent the spread of Omicron at a significant economic and societal cost? Or should they just rip off the Band-Aid and return to a more normal life? I personally believe they should lift the Band-Aid up. Of course, China has an ulterior motive right now with the Olympics, but eventually it's going to break through. You can't be locked down forever. And we live in a society where people are traveling, so it might have worked hundreds of years ago, but now it's, it's inevitable that they'll have a break at some point, and it might be a mutation that's going to be more difficult. So, Do you think lockdowns are effective at reducing death rates? I'm not a fan, and I don't know if you saw the article in the Johns Hopkins about the lockdown not really being effective or just having like a 0.2% effect, but the uh, lockdowns were not that effective in mortality. I know you're also excited about using your breath to do a rapid COVID test. Tell us about the efficacy and simplicity of using a breath test. Coronavirus has a specific breath print and Ohio State University published an article a few months back how you could, with an 88% accuracy, tell the difference between COVID and non-COVID in a hospital setting. They're working on an outpatient breathalyzer as well. They've had a rapid breath test called the Spironose in the Netherlands that was employed, I believe, by the music festival that they had months back. 
and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has one, Rutgers University has one. I recently spoke to the CEO of Breath of Health in Israel. They've been working on a COVID breath test. Again, the advantage of having something like that, you can imagine going into a basketball game instead of showing your vaccine card, you could just walk in with a breath test and you feel more comfortable that you're COVID negative. There's an article that's supposed to be published according to the Breath of Health CEO within the next two weeks in the European journals. I want to change topics to the decline in the prevalence of COVID. I live in Miami Beach, and today I passed two outdoor COVID testing sites, one in Miami and the other in Miami Beach. For the past few weeks, there have been a long lines. Today, there was nobody in line. This could be purely anecdotal, but what are you seeing out there, Ari? I went to the COVID center as well because I had a severe sore throat and I had coronavirus OH63, which is not COVID, but I did get tested and the line was about three people. It's incredible. So we're, thank God, at a downslope and the hospital is seeing the same. Ari, can you speak about another recent invention to protect yourself against COVID? Instead of wearing a mask, you would use an intranasal spray that would be applied like you now use Afrin. The spray would be a prophylactic against COVID in the nose. Ari, what do you make of this idea? What are some of the intranasal options for COVID? So right now there are no approved intranasal prophylactic anti-SARS medicines. But let's say you're going to a football game or a basketball game or whatever, you want to be protected for four hours. You know, can you take something? In the very beginning of COVID, there was an article from China which fascinated me. It was intranasal interferon, and it was a positive trial. What they did is they treated the healthcare workers in a certain hospital. Again, they all got intranasal interferon, and the other group didn't, and it was dramatic. The ones with intranasal interferon were less likely to have COVID. And that was really early on, the first three months. So that's why I was interested in the possibility of intranasal iodine, which we talked previously. There is this study out of the Netherlands. It's TRI-SB92, which is published in one of the journals recently, where it doesn't competitively bind with the ACE2 receptor, but it changes the conformation of the spike protein so that the spike protein of the coronavirus can't attach to the ACE2 receptor. So, And it actually has shown to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 in mice. So they're going to be working on that nasal spray. The other two nasal sprays, one of them, it was against the regular coronavirus, studied many years ago, and it was published in the journal Nature. And what that would do is it would have a protective barrier, actually use cold trypsin from fish, cod trypsin, and it would be a barrier against the coronavirus from infecting the lungs. You would be sick for one day less. There is another intranasal spray called Tafix. It's in Israel, T-A-F-F-I-X. And this, I think, is very fascinating. Four months ago, during the Hebrew New Year, the percent positivity at that time was 18 to 25%. And what they did is in Bnei Brak, it's a city where... They're all crunched together in the synagogue. So 160 people did not use it, and about 80 people used it. And only two out of the 80 people who used this Tafix, intranasal Tafix, that's 2.4%, 
developed COVID were as 10% of the non-users were infected. Tafix is an intranasal spray, which is a powder, and it blocks the influx of COVID. I'm just making the point that there could be future ways as a prophylactic measure, even if it's not for COVID, it might be for other respiratory illnesses. They are going to be working on a intranasal COVID vaccine soon enough. Why do you think intranasal spray prophylactics will be a potential game changer? It's a game changer because all these respiratory viruses have to get into your oropharynx to infect you. And you're not going to have to deal with any anti-vaxxer sentiment. You just do a spray and you're golden. And also it's going to be good, hopefully, for the variants as well. And it will allow you to go in public without fear? Correct. All right. Thanks, as always, for joining us. I'll catch you later. Bye. Our next speaker is Jeremy Chlorphine, who is a clinical psychologist. I asked Jeremy to speak about what he's seeing in his practice with young adults' struggles during COVID. Hey, Larry, let me start by saying how your show has helped me keep it together during COVID. It has been anchoring and reduced my anxiety big time, so I thank you for that. My topic today is about mental health. I am a clinical psychologist, and I witness the mental health crisis in my practice every day. There are three factors currently driving mental health. One is technology, second is comfort is the new happy, and the third is blowing up of the Overton window. I mean by that we are losing the range of acceptable topics to talk about, and that is followed by a breakdown in social norms and social order. I spoke on what happens next 18 months ago. I used a swimming analogy. There are swimmers with different levels of competency. And if you add two 20-pound ankle weights, good swimmers can usually survive. But poor swimmers who normally struggle in ordinary conditions will really struggle or even drown. And the pandemic actually added heavy ankle weights for everyone, and it really took down those individuals with poor mental health. I want to define depression and anxiety. Depression is defined as feelings of despair, loneliness, helplessness that can result in sleep issues, physical pain, concentration issues, and loss in pleasurable activities. Just general overall sadness. Anxiety is defined to be chronic worry. It's that sick to your feeling stomach, uncontrollable negative thinking, such as losing control, along with sleep symptoms, headaches, muscle tension. Anxiety certainly can contribute to overeating, things that we saw that get the social, the uh, COVID-19, everybody gained 19 pounds over COVID. Both depression and anxiety decrease our physical activity and socialization. It encourages substance abuse and addiction problems. The comorbidity of addiction is often paired with depression and anxiety, which can make treatment even more challenging. Here is the good news. Anxiety and depression are actually down substantially from a year ago as the world has opened up, but it's still worse than pre-COVID levels. For kids, going back to school and spending time with their friends, it certainly was a game changer. However, late teens and young adults ages 18 to 29 have been hit the hardest with depression and anxiety where individuals 65 and 70 who are ironically at the highest risk of dying from COVID did the best psychologically. The elderly were the most stable and best mentally prepared for the challenge. They were, in fact, our best swimmers. In my practice, substance abuse and addiction soared to unprecedented levels. All my clients who were sober and working their recovery program most relapsed, generally from alcohol and weed. During COVID, getting access to inpatient mental health and drug treatment wasn't available, which just made matters worse. Why were the 18 to 29-year-olds hit hardest from a mental health perspective? Well, this group has what I would describe as the fewest boundaries, 
the most opportunities, way more stimuli, and endless convenience and comforts. This age group lacks a long-term partner, a history of working, and could have significant financial challenges. And young people have way more pressure to succeed than our generation because of social media, because they see what most successful friends are doing right now in the best possible light. They are in a constant state of comparison, and it can be overwhelming to manage all that stimuli. It basically sucks. More young adults are living at home since the Great Depression, upwards of 50%. Getting your own place is expensive, and living at home makes sense for so many, especially because COVID living by yourself can be quite isolating and lonely. Certainly better to be at home with mom and the dog playing video games in the basement and getting a home-cooked meal. Technology has no boundaries. Social media, you name it, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snap, gaming, and endless porn. These tools are soul-sucking. Technology is addictive. It's made to be addictive. It's sinister in terms of how it works. These apps are designed to keep us distracted and keep us hooked. We are all toast in that matter. It negatively affects our physical, psychological, and emotional health. More technology for anyone generally means less exercise, less sleep, and more eating. These apps activate dopamine, cannabinoid, endorphin, and serotonergic systems that are all geared towards addiction. The digital experience parallels weed or alcohol addiction as well as gambling. Some people can work it out. Many can't. So technology is a huge negative force on our mental health. Second big point is we have a comfort crisis. Our whole society is geared towards more comfort and convenience. It is bizarre. Actually, we spend more time with our kids, more activities, more sports. These kids are getting specialized skills and diverse experiences, but they're losing independence. They're not able to do things on their own, and we are extending adolescence. Kids have not learned how to deal with discomfort or even normal anxiety, like the basics, taking a test, giving a class presentation, forget about breaking up with a boyfriend. There is this comfort creep, which is we keep adding more pillows to protect and comfort us, but inadvertently develop less and less tolerance for any discomfort. We want to remove sadness, anxiety, or stress. Even what is considered normal, everyday, reasonable failure, anxiousness, or stress is rejected. The problem is pervasive. Kids go to college with higher levels of anxiety and depression than ever before. It is up over 80% for the past 15 years. My practice is filled with these kids because they struggle with self-soothing and coping skills to deal with comfort or stress. Third and final big point is the Overton window. The term originated to be what we can safely talk about in normal society, but I'm going to expand it to include basic social mores and how we treat each other. Those goalposts have moved and the Overton window has shifted. Trump gave us ship whole nation and the progressives gave us political correctness. Every slight or comment becomes extremely unsettling, creating feelings of anger and fear. And that's what my patients actually want to talk about. We are struggling to know what basic decency even means anymore. Jeremy, thank you. Let's start with the topic of weed. There's a worldview that marijuana use in moderation is not that harmful. A few times a week or just Saturday night to get high and have some fun. What's the big deal, Dad? How bad is weed? Does it cause depression? Does it make kids stronger or weaker? What should I be telling my kids? Great question. It's an appropriate question given what I'm saying right now. The active ingredient in weed is 10%, 15, 20, 25, 30, 50% THC levels in the basic flour or even in gummies. And what we grew up on, weed was about 4 to 5% THC. It would be equivalent to us growing up on beer 
versus our kids today drinking the equivalent amount in bourbon. And then someone says, oh, weed isn't so bad. Okay, this stuff is powerful. It makes them dumb, slow, lethargic. And teenager brains are still developing. It is seriously potent stuff. And I am seeing it in my practice. Great example for you. I'm going to call him Josh. Josh is 23 years old. Parents got divorced, tried going to college, didn't work out, didn't have the internal muscle to stick through it. He just didn't have that fortitude. He smoked weed a lot. Josh struggled. And the first thing I said is less is better. Zero is best. I've really convinced him he's smoking less than he ever has. He's like, God, I'm sleeping better. I feel better. I'm not as anxious. And he came in for anxiety because he was completely underachieving in every facet. I'm telling the parents out there, weed is the problem. You mentioned that a lot of kids are living at home and that adolescence is creeping into adulthood. Is this a mixed blessing? What is the main reason they're living at home? They're trying to save up for money. I think the big five, which is housing, automobiles, technology, education, and healthcare has been getting very expensive in the past 40 years. So if you want to live on your own, it's really hard if you have a job that pays you $30,000. The downside is, are they living at home because they're underachieving? Are they just like, I'm not comfortable working harder and kind of grinding it out? Kids today are having sex later. They're getting their driver's license later. And Larry, the truth is when we grew up, if you wanted to have fun, it was not in the house. There was nothing in the house that was fun. These kids are basically saying, it's uncomfortable to be an adult. Why are young adults making this decision to live at home and stay away from the fun? Do they prefer to hang out with mom and dad? Or are they just happen to be in the same house? They're in the same house online. We didn't have online. If we wanted to have fun, we were outside the house. That's where we were socializing. It's also work. I couldn't wait. I came home from college. I found a place and never came back because there was nothing back home that I found pleasurable. I just want you to understand it's the reverse. Jim Miller spoke two weeks ago on What Happens Next about the history of HBO and specifically about The Sopranos, which at its core is a story about a gangster's relationship with his therapist. Tony was scared that his peers would discover that he was getting help. Have social norms changed about having a therapist? The answer is yes. All levels of whether it's seeing a psychiatrist, seeing a psychologist, seeing a life coach, seeing an executive coach, seeing a sports psychologist. Good or bad? Uh, it's complicated. Am I glad the stigmas come down? Yes. The way we're parenting our kids, we are working our butt off to do the best for them. But inadvertently, we don't know how to separate giving them opportunities, helping them, and then letting them be independent. Okay, so quick story. I grew up in Evanston. I was 11. I was at seventh grade, and me and my buddies took the red line to Wrigley Field to pay $9 for bleacher seats. How many people in this audience will let their 11-year-old take a train to go to Cubs? Okay, well, it's not as safe today. That's not true. It's plenty safe. How are we basically developing some resiliency and being able to strengthen this young generation to continue to build some internal muscle to fight through some of that anxiety. In the first few weeks of COVID, Jonathan Haidt spoke in my podcast, and he said that COVID was a mixed blessing for us. The downside, obviously, is people die and kids can't go to school. But life slows down. We get a chance to rethink our goals and objectives. Now, some people got depressed and lonely, but others said, I've really had a chance to reevaluate my life, and I'm more in control, I'm happier and relaxed. There's a good and bad in all things in life. 
How should we think about this as a mixed blessing? The positive side of it is I see gratitude, appreciating your relationships that you do have, the support that you need, and then being isolated. And there was this kind of hunkering down, nesting for those families that could do it. And then such a ridiculous appreciation to be able to reconnect with friends. There is absolutely this reshift and like, man, I'm not taking anything for granted. I'm taking much less for granted. Technology. I see the pros and cons. Zoom allows work from home and flexible work hours, but Zoom means you're working all the time. Technology makes this podcast happen. These tech apps are so inexpensive and they're so good and easy to use. And at the same time, I totally sympathize with your observation that technology is crushing our kids. I'm a secular Jew and I can't imagine turning off my phone on Friday night and turning it back on after sunset on Saturday. The thought, by the way, of pulling that off, it seems incomprehensible, yet I see my religious friends pull it off every weekend. I can't even believe that they can do it. But your brain is a little bit different. Technology is really, for you, a little more kick-ass tool. How many people can now take a crap without their phone? It's not possible. So there are times in the day, like, I actually put my phone in a different room, and I'm just walking around. And the first, like, five minutes, it's a little uncomfortable, and then it's liberating. And you're like, wow, this actually is fine. I don't want to stop technology, okay? I'm just talking about limiting we have to find a way to get our eyes off it. And look, one of the antidotes is put it away and spend more time in nature. Nature is basically a natural Xanax. So if we're talking about anxiety and depression, if you want to bring down anxiety, we have to spend time offline and we're uncomfortable doing that. You mentioned that the 60 to 70-year-old cohorts is happier, less depressed, more grounded, grittier than our 18 to 29-year-olds. Why? Why aren't they coming to your therapist's office depressed and lonely like the rest of them? They are coming in as well, but for different reasons. The marriage may have ended or they lose someone. The older generation built their tolerance for discomfort, their understanding of what it takes to be successful. The sheer muscles, psychological, physical will to have pushed through the difficulties of life, they are more time tested. Their ability to tolerate downtime, silence. Ask a kid today to sit in a room and do nothing. You would think it's torture. You can't make them uncomfortable because then they're going to be unhappy because the new comfort is when you ask parents today, what do you want for your kids? Okay, I know it's a cliche. They say, I just want them to be happy. Yeah, that's all I want. Right, and we know we want our kids to be happy, but we also want them to be resilient, successful, and things like that. What you really are saying is we don't want them uncomfortable. We don't want them suffering I don't recommend trauma, but I recommend that there's a way they find some grit, which is developing resilience and a type of callousing. They have to skin their knee. They got to be able to get up on their own. They got to weather difficult challenges. Let's talk about meds. We're so quick to medicate everything and anything. And I remember the first time that we met at a bar mitzvah eight years ago, Jeremy, you told me that we had made enormous strides in the use of medication. And now you're saying that we over-medicate. What are we supposed to do? Oh, man. Really great question. Um, oh, Larry, man. Uh, this is loaded. I mean, that's your show, so I'm not going to punt. I think the idea of comfort crisis and medication is in conflict because we don't want our kids to suffer. And when they are suffering, they are not in a good place. 
there's no way a parent is going to deny that person the tools to help them feel better and be better. I think the part that's challenging is the other aspects of their lives that it takes them to get better. The work ethic, the discipline, eating better, exercising. I mean, if you don't do that, then we over-medicate. I would never tell a parent, don't give your kid medication when they are suffering. But as a whole, if you give kids 16 hours straight of gaming, and then they say, okay, now you need to study, and they're like, I can't focus. I need some ADD meds. That's not ADD. That's training them to not focus, and then we're going to give them meds. So that's where I think the challenge is. If you can limit the technology, let me see if they need meds. Take away technology, 50%. They may not need the Adderall. So great question, very loaded answer. Gaming, I have a son. He loves it. I noticed that he's gotten older, he plays less and less. How bad is it really if it's just a temporary thing? Now, if you're 26 living at home and gaming all day long, fine, I get your point. How do you know which kid in advance is going too far? You got to limit it in the beginning and then see where they morph into. You mentioned in your opening remarks that we have activities for kids that are highly tailored for maximum interest. Guilty as charged. I tried to follow my child's interest to the max. Sometimes I thought I did some good. Sometimes I thought I went too far. High school guidance counselors encourage specialization for college admission process to help distinguish kids. Is that social norm of encouraging specialization a mistake? No. I think the question is, when is there the downtime? I think if a kid can play the violin, if the kid is just badass in soccer, if the kid can have that skill and they're good at it, do it. But then we don't stop there, man. We keep going. So when is the downtime? But then the downtime becomes just sitting on their phones versus being a participant in the home. Like, when's the last time a kid mowed the lawn? Imagine that. Kids have frequent ups and downs. There's a time where we need outside help because there's trouble at school with their friends or family. There might be other problems like too much weed, gaming. Mistakes are made. And they hit lows. And then who knows why? They rebound and things are okay. And we all go on to the next life adventure. Love it. Absolutely. That's the normal process of life. That example, the way you just kind of narrated that, but what happens when they say that shouldn't happen? They shouldn't feel down. They're too anxious. And there's a lot of great kids who are just freaking struggling. And then they need some support. Sometimes you hear stuff like, oh, they didn't get to go to prom. They didn't get a graduation. They didn't have a proper freshman year at college. It's really been so hard. I tried to say to my kid, there was a generation that went to war and watched their buddies get killed. Okay, you didn't have a prom. I get it. It's horrible. Get over it. What should we be telling these kids that miss life milestones? I would say it one notch differently than you did. Acknowledge it. Say, it's a bummer. Let's move on. So you just acknowledge it, validate it, but don't give it like, oh my God, on a scale of zero to 10, that was a 9.7 of hell. New norms. I used to get up in the morning, go to work. Now I don't. And once those norms have been established, it's very challenging to reestablish historical norms. Now, some people can move back and forth between these worlds seamlessly, or maybe even grow from it. But others struggle and won't be able to adjust. Push through the discomfort. You'll find your groove. Sometimes you may not get comfortable for a while. That's part of the comfort crisis, that you believe you have a right to be more comfortable. What's being asked of you now? 
to get up and go to work. That's the inconvenience. It is uncomfortable, but it's doable. You adjust. Your nature will adjust to it. And then you'll find positives through that. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Jeremy, what are you optimistic about? I believe in people. People get better. There's an internal gyroscope. People can feel better, but it's not feel better because they're more comfortable. They're more empowered. And they're doing it with COVID. I'm so over it, even though I'm still struggling with it. I'm like, we'll get through it. What do you need? Let's figure it out. And people do. People feel supported. They kick ass. And that's what keeps me alive. (laughs) Jeremy, thank you. You got it, brother. You're the best, man. Thanks to Ari and Jeremy for joining us today. That ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's show. Casey Mulligan will join us. Casey was Trump's chief economic advisor, and he's now a professor of labor economics at the University of Chicago. This will be Casey's fourth time joining us on the program. He will discuss his new paper on the impact that the COVID stimulus checks have had on the number of alcohol and opiate deaths. This paper is extremely provocative. Our second speaker will be Kyle Kondik, who is the managing editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's University Center of Politics. He will be discussing his new book, The Long Red Thread, How Democratic Dominance Gave Way to Republican Advantage in the U.S. House Elections. Our discussion will focus on gerrymandering and the likelihood of a Republican takeover of the House. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin60minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.